Good morning, and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today, and I'm joined at the desk by Brianna Joy Gray. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Ravi. What is going on? Well, Representative Ro Khanna will join us later. We'll discuss the Congressional Progressive Caucus's next steps post-election. Plus, we'll get into why Democrats' performance in New York may have lost them the House with State Senator Jabari Brisport. But first, Democrat Katie Hobbs has defeated Republican Kari Lake and will serve as Arizona's next governor, completing Democrats' sweep for statewide office in the Grand Canyon state. Team Blue also picked up a Senate seat and the Secretary of State's office. Less than 51,000 ballots are still needed to to be counted in Arizona as of last night. 16,000 of those votes are from Maricopa County alone. In an appearance on MSNBC, Maricopa County official Megan Gilbertson was asked what we're all wondering, what is taking so long? This is fast for Maricopa County. It usually takes us anywhere between 10 and 12 days to complete the count, and we think we're going to be done by the end of this week. We follow the laws as they're written. Um, We have a lot of amazing laws here that allow voters um, different kinds of access and to vote in the ways that work best for them. So we're going to continue to do the work here. We're going to continue to count the ballots, and uh, we're going to continue to provide the results to the public. Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake, who has yet to concede, slammed Arizona's election process over the weekend, calling the state an embarrassment and the laughing stock of the elections. This morning, Lake suggested on Twitter that her competitor, Katie Hobbs, victory was illegitimate, tweeting, quote, Arizonans know BS when they see it. There is no evidence of any illegal activity in this year's election. That was my editorial edition, not, not what was in the quote. So, uh, yeah, so, so Lake going down to defeat. Um, not ready to admit that. I guess that's not really surprising given that like denying the results of elections is kind of was kind of the centerpiece of her campaign. Turns out that's not a smart thing to run on. I don't know who convinced her. Well, actually, I do know who convinced her to do that. It was Donald Trump. <laughs> Here we are. Um, so yeah. it, it does seem to be the case that in Maricopa County, for whatever reason, they always take a long time to count ballots. Yeah. Not is sure. that acceptable? Uh, of course not. Yeah. It's absurd, especially in this kind of a climate. You have to... Un- I mean, it's it's a sad thing, but you have to anticipate that yeah. people are going to try to exploit that kind of longevity in counting in, in to right. to make claims about the election not being valid. You ran on democracy as a Democratic Party. You have to know that this is the kind of claim that's going to come down the pike and why you wouldn't be making more efforts to try to reform this system. I don't know. But here we are. And so it has been interesting to see Carrie Lake take her case to Twitter, take her case to certain news organizations and try to to stir the pot, especially in the wake of an election cycle where election deniers fared so poorly overall. Yeah. Look, Florida had a terrible election system in 2000. That was the laughingstock of the nation that led to a, that could have led to a much worse crisis than it, I mean, it did lead to a crisis. It was horrible what happened. It actually, the the results of those elections were not clear and were confusing Mm -hmm. because of how badly they screwed up the, the, Bush v. Gore. Uh, then they fixed it after that, and they don't have those problems anymore. Uh, these states that are taking forever, I, I don't think this is acceptable. Um, I, I don't think that means, and we've not seen like you know wide evidence of fraud. But I understand why people are asking those questions. You know, watching it, in Nevada is even more. You know, Laxalt well ahead, and then and then over days and days and days that gap closes. And I understand Republicans looking a little side-eyed at that, even if there is nothing illegitimate there. So we, we can't have that happening. Yeah. Um, but all, but that does not change the reality that these Republican candidates lost. Other Republican candidates who did not run on the issues that Lake and Masters did 
have won. And that is an indictment of their campaign strategies. I don't understand why people... I, you know, Carrie Lake was described by some conservatives. Initially, she was opposed. But then as soon as she got the nomination, conservatives were talking about, you know, what a good... She's because she's a TV personality. She's she's poised. She's she's uh, she's a real firebrand. She delivers her, her remarks well. Um, she's she's telegenic. Um, and she's this great, you know, great, wonder, amazing uh, uh, Republican candidate. But she lost. Like, you have to, you have to win. Yeah. And you have to run on something that resonates with with voters. I think her presentation was very good, but she clearly didn't connect with voters because she was idiosyncratically obsessed with this thing that is just not a winner. Well, look, it was close. And as I said, I watched their not quite a debate, but mm-hmm. their presentations to the crowd. And she did seem to be, you know, fluent in the issues, substantively not you know, taking the positions that I think were right or good for, you know, mm-hmm. constituents, but seemed to ha- to be able to control the crowd and be very fluent on the issues in a way that I think goes a- far above and beyond a lot of television personality types who decide to enter into politics. And I, I frankly thought she was going to win, not based on polling, but just based on how people in the state might receive her. And it also was close. It obviously is a yeah. close race. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this but conversation. Like the, the, so they have the current governor, the outgoing governor is a Republican, Doug Ducey. He's not a like super he's very conservative. You would consider his policies extremely conservative, but he's not like a Trump. He's pretty conservative on immigration. Uh, he's known for like school choice stuff that I like. You probably don't like. Um, he just doesn't. He didn't agree with the the lie stuff. He's not utterly beholden to Trump. He was reelected in 2018 by a margin of 56 to 42. 56 to 42. So this was close. But like, why run a, a Carrie Lake type person in this state instead of a Doug Ducey type person? And he would have run for Senate, except he knew he was going to have Trump sabotage him the way uh, the way Trump tried to sabotage Brian Kemp and some other people. Yeah, this yeah. is this is just this is this is shooting Republicans shooting themselves in the foot at yeah. some point. Yeah. Well, look, another thing that ended up happening in this was that I saw that some people I saw Jesse Waters on Fox, for instance, trying to set expectations in the other way for this, saying that if the results take a long time to come out, then you should be suspicious. There's no reason this should be a week long event, et cetera. Even though per this Washington Post article trying to explain why things are taking so long. Apparently, this is par for the course. It's regularly 12 days or so uh, for votes to be counted here. And as part of the explanation, they say, look, at a time when Maricopa County needed a near-perfect election, some printers used to produce ballots on demand failed at about a third of the polling locations on election day. I mean, this kind of thing, when you know there's going to be a setup, when you know that there are people out there who want to exploit these kinds of delays for political gain, it's just not smart. It's not a good look on the part of Democrats. Um, And it doesn't help Katie Hobbs. Yeah. But but this stuff only comes into play when it's close. Mm -hmm. Because if it's not close, then it doesn't really matter. Then then they can model it ahead of time if it's a blowout. And (laughs) Republicans did blow out their opponents in some states just with different candidates and different priorities. Yeah. So it, it can't, they got to, and if they have a problem with the way elections are run, they got to win an election every now and then, and then they can change whatever the policy is. But, it, you know, just kind of whining about how unfair it is, is, uh, is, uh, is not going to work. Yeah. Well, we'll be talking a little bit later about some of the dissonance that's now happening within the Republican, Republican party, the fight for who is going to be, um, the speaker of the house as a consequence of who, of who is perceived to be at fault for the failures, uh, of the red wave that never was. Uh, so stick with us and we'll have more for you coming up next. All right, Robbie, what's on your radar today? 
All right, here we go. Well, at Rising here, we've been laser focused on the U.S. midterm election results for the last week or so, with an occasional check-in to see whatever Elon Musk is up to. But there's another big, big story going on in the tech and financial worlds, and it's time to start talking about it here. So I mean, of course, uh, FTX, the cryptocurrency exchange that went bankrupt a few days ago. This is a massive story involving considerable, what looks to me like fraud. FTX's problems have caused panic in the highly volatile crypto market. Market, prompting billions of losses in other exchanges. Bitcoin and Ethereum are currently feeling the pain. But the major issue going on here is with FTX. So this cryptocurrency exchange was founded by a young man named Sam Bankman Freed, who goes by SBF. He is 30 years old. He has unruly hair and wears shorts all the time. He's become a major funder, actually, of liberal and democratic causes. In fact, this election cycle, he was the second largest funder of Democrats after George Soros. His political donations maybe bought him a good, a great deal of goodwill from the mainstream media. Here he is being interviewed by CNBC and described as crypto's white knight for bailing out struggling companies. Watch this. Let's talk about what's going on with Sam Bankman-Fried. In just the past five years, Sam Bankman-Fried went from buying his first Bitcoin to become a, becoming a multi-billionaire. The FTX founder is now worth an estimated $11 billion. He could have bought that Jordan jersey if he wanted to. His exchange is now worth $32 billion, and it brought in about a billion dollars in revenue just last year. CNBC's Kate Rooney has more on the CEO's rise to the top of the crypto industry. They call him the J.P. Morgan of crypto, right? Yeah, the Michael Jordan of crypto, if you will. <laughs> uh, Sam Bankman-Fried has really played a key role in the uh, crypto industries. Um, just the role in the industry this year in general, Andrew, he spent hundreds of millions of dollars to bail out struggling companies facing bankruptcy and liquidity issues, you name it. The CEO, though, lives a relatively understated life for a billionaire. He drives a Toyota Corolla to FTX's offices in the Bahamas, he lives with 10 roommates and a golden doodle named Gopher, sometimes sleeps under a, uh, his desk on a beanbag chair as well. I sat down with Bankman Freed outside of FTX's headquarters to talk about his role as the industry's lender of last resort. So I want to give you a sense of the kind of glowing coverage this guy has been getting for quite a while now. Despite sitting atop a house of cards, one that has all come crashing down. So here's what happened. In addition to running FTX, he also ran something called Alameda Research, which was a quantitative trading firm. As of one year ago, SBF owned 90% of Alameda. FTX is a cryptocurrency storage and trading platform. FTX holds people's crypto assets, their coins, and then helps them sell them for a fee. But what SBF did with those assets is lend them to Alameda Research to make investments. SBF then created a token that he called FTT. He used that token to pay Alameda's investors, employees, and vendors. So that's all a bit complicated, but SBF essentially used deception to make FTX seem much more valuable than it was, and then paid off various debts by selling that deception. Eventually, deceptions are always discovered. On November 2nd, a leaked Alameda balance sheet revealed that most of its 11 billion in assets was tied to that token. So this caused panic and prompted tons of investors to withdraw from FTX. The result? Bankruptcy. FTX is headquartered in the Bahamas. There are rumors that SBF has been taken into custody, though he clearly still has access to his Twitter account. So who knows? 
Writing in Common Sense, Michael Green describes SBF as akin to Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos, the woman who defrauded investors on her blood testing idea, or like a, quote, less civic-minded Bernie Madoff. (laughs) Devastating. This disaster will likely lead to increased calls to regulate the cryptocurrency industry. It's important to keep in mind one important fact, however. Congress had been looking recently at a specific crypto regulation, the Digital Commodities Consumer Protection Act. It was introduced in the Senate in August, passed the Senate's Banking Committee in September. That regulation was being propelled by Sam Bankman Freed. <laughs> According to Fortune, the whole thing was spearheaded by Sam and FTX. So let's be clear, a fraudster who deceived crypto users, investors, employees, and vendors to the tune of billions of dollars was the guy writing Congress's crypto rules. This guy just so happened to have bought his way to a position of paramount prominence within the Democratic Party. By the way, here's a photo of SBF with Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, paid celebrity endorsers of FTX at a conference he put together in the Bahamas. Do you have confidence our elected officials were about to regulate crypto in a manner that did not unfairly benefit Sam Bankman-Fried? I certainly don't. So this is an interesting discussion, a uh, subject that I, I assume we'll be discussing uh, more on the show. I'd love to bring in some people with obviously more expertise than either of us have in crypto and et cetera. So that's just kind of an overview of, uh, of what's going on based on you know what I've, I've read about this in the news. Pretty bad. Uh, unquestionably, a, a really gross fraud on his part to kind of create this fake, this coin, and then use that to you know pay. It's kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul, et cetera. Or I guess it's robbing Peter and then and convincing and then paying Peter something that doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like this is, this is the fundamental issue as I understand it with so many of these newfangled, um, currencies, whatever you think about regulation, part of the reason why we have the regulations we do with respect to the other banks where so many of us keep our money, Mm -hmm. our livelihoods is because there needs to be a guarantee that there's a certain amount of liquidity in the bank so that you don't get things like a run on the bank, which happened here in part because one of, um, uh, his rivals, uh, Changping Zhao, who's an executive at, um, Binance and a rival exchange ended up withdrawing a large amount of money. This is another part of the story, right? It started the run on the bank. And then subsequently he actually had offered, to buy the failing company, um, Fried's company. Uh, and when they looked into it, decided it wasn't advantageous for him to do so. Yeah. And Bankman Fried says that was all part of his ruse to, to kind of drive down um, his company. Uh, and then he had never any real intention of buying it. So there's all of this weird insider back and forth. But it, what seems really obvious is that there are advantages to having some regulation that protects the idea that there is actually value in the thing that you're investing in. And that... If, if there's actually real money mm-hmm. there that you can invest instead of it be, having been p- passed off, apparently, to pay uh, Alameda and all of these kinds of insider deals that he was working I with. thought you might say, uh, you know, who cares? A bunch of, uh, bunch of uh, wealthy people uh, p- poured their money into this con and they got conned. That well, sucks for them, but I, where's the, I don't care. Unfortunately, <laughs> there, there are a lot of people who aren't so wealthy that really bought into the idea of Bitcoin. Um, and to the extent that there might be some real yeah. reasonable applications for these kinds of cryptocurrencies from a privacy perspective, uh, I think it's, it's useful for them to operate as they should. They should, uh, they should protect the people who are invested in them. What is problematic is that we've, we've seen celebrities go on late night shows and advertise their monkeys and try to get normal people to buy in. And normal people do buy in and they're hurt by these kinds of things as well. Yeah. But I do think this is a kind of, um, an analogy for what happens in the banking industry, generally speaking, just like Sam Bankman-Fried did. 
bankers write laws that make it advantageous for themselves to do things that are ruinous for the general population. We saw this happen in disastrous fashion in 2008, and there were no consequences for it. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll be continuing to follow this, and we'll have more rising in just a minute. President Joe Biden responded to questioning regarding whether there should be a Cold War with China after his meetings with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Let's watch. I absolutely believe there need not be a new Cold War. We, uh, I've met many times with Xi Jinping, and we were candid and clear with one another across the board. And I do not think there's any imminent attempt on the part of China to invade Taiwan. And I uh, made it clear that our policy in Taiwan has not changed at all. It's the same exact position we've had. I made it clear that we want to see cross-strait issues peacefully resolved. And, uh, and so it never has to come to that. And uh, I'm convinced that, uh, that he understood exactly what I was saying. Biden also said that on issues where he and Xi Jinping had to, quote, further resolve details, they would have the appropriate cabinet members sit and meet with one another to discuss. According to The Hill, Biden told Xi Jinping that the United States' one-China policy toward China has not changed. The Washington Post states this policy acknowledges that the People's Republic of China is the sole legal republic of China and that Taiwan is part of China. The Hill writes that the U.S. holds unofficial relations with Taiwan, but through the Taiwan Relations Act, is committed to ensuring that the territory has the means to defend itself. Mm. Now, is this a kind of a different sort of conversation than we're having a couple of months ago uh, at the time of Nancy Pelosi's visit? I feel like back then it was it seemed to be very controversial to state what Joe Biden has just affirmed right now. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, uh, maybe that was just a media-created circus. It then, does feel that <laughs> way. And this uh, wouldn't be the first time. Remember, the media was against Joe Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan, even though the people were for it. The media was clamoring for a no-fly zone in Ukraine, even though Biden, I think, rightly showed restraint yes. in that that way. He does seem to be veering toward, like, a, away from the kind of a pro-war uh, venom that is coming from parts of the press, despite obviously and supporting party. and parts of his own party. Yeah. I think the uh, the question some people will have, though, is did uh, he ask Xi Jinping about a potential biosafety incident at a certain lab back in November? That's what we would like to know about. And they've said, reports are, that uh, that did not come up. He did not ask about that. Um, what, 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 I mean, do you I think mean, that is— Look, I don't want to have a more antagonistic relationship with, with, with China, but— um, I mean, don't we? I mean, we deserve answers to these questions. I mean, it should. Do you think, on some level, there's a complete understanding, actually, on the part of the U.S. government about what happened at this point, two years out? Is this really the subject of conversations between Biden and Xi? Well, you're saying they they already know. They've all agreed that it already happened, and there's no. No, more to say whatever about happened, it. <laughs> that whatever happened, they already know what has transpired. Well, they should be honest with the American people and the Chinese people then, if they're all if they know what happened. Well, um, well instead of leaving us to slowly piece it together, certainly then they shouldn't uh, be pressuring tech companies to censor what they actually all know to be true. Well, that, that may be the case, but look, we, you mentioned that there are there are parts of Biden's own party that were, um, you know, kind of hungry for war. It seems in the context of yeah. his uh, administration, but of course there are Republicans that seem to be pushing for uh, war with China as well. Fox News take what, on this. Well, uh, that was that uh, Biden titled Biden's weakness on full display and she meaning president no match for China's tyrant. There's been a lot of appetite for uh, kind of pushing for escalated tensions between the two leaders. Uh, 
Rudy Giuliani was tweeting critical of the press, not asking more questions about potential antagonisms between the two of them. And I wonder what you make of that, because there does seem to be some people say that the Republican disinterest in a war in Ukraine is because there was a longer game plan for a war with China that they would prefer to see out see play out for various geopolitical I think that's certainly true of some Republicans, even some Republicans described as more, you know, ostensibly more uh, anti-intervention. You're right. They're anti-intervention on the Ukraine-Russia conflict, but they're still, but, you know, they're very anti-China. Now, some Republicans, however, and, and I would I would include I would agree with this kind of framing. China is, I think, a more serious threat to world stability and the U.S. than what's happening between Russia and Ukraine. That does not mean that we should have a, a, a certainly a war with them or that we should uh, have a war with them over Taiwan or that we should have you know, any sort of military engagement with them. But we need some kind of strategy to—it to, it would be great if we could engage with them just productively, diplomatically, and resolve our differences. Um, the authoritarian backsliding that China has done over our lifetimes is, uh, is bad. It's a problem. It's a bad for the people of China. It's bad for us. And I would like to hear policy ideas or solutions from uh, our lawmakers that, you're right, that don't include, uh, well, we're going to, you know, ship missiles to Taiwan or we're going to, you know, start World War III if that happens, but reckon with the fact that China knocks off our IP, that China has other economic issues and that they are causing a lot of suffering to their own people and that they <laughs> exported, maybe incidentally, a disease that killed millions and millions and millions of people. Yeah. Our co-host, uh, Batyangar Sargan, made the point uh, that this is really more about Trade, a trade war and trade conflict, yeah. and that Biden is basically um, obscuring that reality by framing it as a uh, Cold War issue, yeah. like a like an actual military exchange issue as opposed to a trade issue, and that ultimately there needs to be a more robust conversation about the ways that American workers are disadvantaged by certain trade sure. agreements. Now, this is something that Trump very much understood. I would argue that Bernie Sanders also very much understood in his messaging. Well, and, and unlike Bacha and, and maybe you, I don't have a lot of faith in the idea that we're going to rebuild America. American manufacturing, and, and that that's going to be this. Well, we'll just do our own thing. We, we don't. We'll rely on them less. We'll bring it all back here. I I, I find that to be. I I don't think that's realistic. That's my perspective Why on it. Why is that? Um, you think it's a fait accompli? We're never going to make America great again. I don't. And not, we're not going to make America an industrial manufacturing center again. Our, the I think our regulations and our labor laws are make it too economically prohibitive to do that here, and no one is going to be comfortable relaxing those or going backward in that direction. And so we have to, we have, there's going to continue to outsource, going to continue to have robots do jobs instead. That's going to be the, I, I, I don't see that direction being slowed. Mm. So. All right. Well, a little bit of cynicism. A little sober, sober, just analysis for me there. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that there are reasons why certain industries do remain in the United States. I think a lot of um, innovation continues to happen in the United States because we made it a, a, a foster that right. sort of an environment. I think there are all kinds of crafts, as we saw within the COVID context, um, where the supply chain really prevented us from having certain you know things that were necessary to our national security and our public health yeah. in place. There's a lot of reasons to invest in bringing things back home for those reasons. And instead of prioritizing saving pennies on the dollar for investors, which is what motivated a lot of the moves overseas. Well, here's one little thing we could do. This is not going to solve, by any stretch of the imagination, solve any, our whole entire problem with China. But when uh, Chinese um, students come here to study and learn from our great universities and then get shipped back, 
let's not ship them back. Let's let them stay here and 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 uh, and strengthen and grow our own economy rather than sending them back. That's mm-hmm. the first thing I would do. And and uh, same of true of immigrants from. All other countries. <laughs> Studying here, we can keep them in the country. <laughs> All right. Uh, permissive, uh, permissive, permissive immigration stands from, from Robbie here. I, I love to hear it. A lot more rising for you right after this. There's a civil war brewing within the Republican Party, according to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Infighting between the GOP's Trump and anti-Trump wings has ramped up following Republicans' lackluster performance on Election Day. Newly elected Ohio Senator J.D. Vance defended the former president in a recent op-ed for the American Conservative, where he claimed that blaming Trump is, quote, counterproductive for the party. Hear what a few other big names in the GOP have said in the days following the Red Ripple. Let's watch. I am so pissed off, I cannot even see straight. The rage that I'm feeling, there are almost not words to describe it, because this opportunity was screwed up. Donald Trump. Yeah, it kept saying, you know, we're going to be winning so much, we'll get tired of winning. I'm tired of losing. I mean, that's all he's done. We're going to fight it out. And I'm telling you, I've always said I'm not afraid of the civil war and the GOP. I lean into it. Let's not vote Mitch McConnell into leadership. He doesn't deserve to be majority leader or minority leader. Fractures within the grand old party are perhaps most apparent in the fight for House Speaker now that the GOP is expected to take the lower chamber by smaller margins than projected. Arizona Congressman and Freedom Caucus leader Andy Biggs announced Monday that he will run for Speaker, contesting House Minority Speaker, uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who's long publicly eyed the coveted top spot in the House. Yesterday, Florida Congressman and Trump loyalist Matt Gates threw one of the first stones vowing not to vote for McCarthy to be the next speaker, criticizing him as flight over fight when the chips are down. Representative Don Bacon told NBC News yesterday that if Republicans can't come to an agreement on speaker, he's willing to work with Democrats to elect a moderate speaker. Hmm. So it's all very interesting. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene, despite being she's actually going to be playing a prominent role here, uh, because despite being like a very, very Trump aligned, you know, MAGA kind of person, she seems to have cultivated a pretty decent relationship with Kevin McCarthy. I know they met for a long time the other day. And then she told she was on Stephen Bannon's podcast, of course, and was saying that. She does not, you know, despite that clip we played of being like, yeah, civil war, let's bring it. She said, but no, we should not have a leadership fight right now because, you know, what could happen? Liz Cheney could end up as speaker then, uh, which I think is absolutely, there's no chance of that happening. But that was, she was using that to try to convince kind of Trumpy people that um, there should not be a challenge to McCarthy. So I suspect McCarthy will be able to become. House yeah, Jennifer speaker. Rubin was champing at the, at the bit for that possibility, Liz yeah, Cheney as speaker uh, of the House, along with a lot of resistance libs. I got to tell you, this whole situation has really made me feel some kind of way because uh-huh. I am old enough to remember when Democrats had a narrow majority in the house and some progressives suggested that they might not vote for Nancy Pelosi to be speaker of the house. People like AOC made it very clear uh, when she was running for office that there was no reason to vote for someone like Nancy Pelosi, that she basically wasn't doing her job if someone like Nancy Pelosi got her uncritical support. And yet with a margin narrow enough for the squad members to be able to vote as a block and hold up the speakership 
at, at the very least until they got any concession in the world from Nancy Pelosi, perhaps a guarantee of student debt cancellation, a guarantee that there was going to be a floor vote for Medicare for all. Absolutely nothing was gained. And in fact, the Democratic Party really forcefully pushed back against the idea that anyone wouldn't vote for Nancy Pelosi, despite the fact that she could be similarly blamed for mm-hmm. some of the down ballot losses in 2020, the way that McCarthy is being blamed for his poor leadership right now. Remember, Republicans use Nancy Pelosi in their attack ads as much, perhaps more than they use Joe Biden, because she is such a deeply unpopular figure, majorities of whom back in a 2020 poll thought that she should step down. And yet there is no appetite for this at all among the Democratic Party. And I'm watching what's happening with Republicans, and I know that they're is, you know, tension and it is potentially has some negative downstream effects. But I frankly think it is healthy for Republicans to be recognizing that they have leverage and can deploy it in ways that ostensibly would benefit the party by picking a more effective leader. Yeah. You're right that there is uh, nothing like what you're seeing here on the Democratic side. There's so much more falling in line on the Democratic side than in the modern Republican Party, where there's just a lot of acrimony and feuding. But my question, my, my question is, I, I'm not sure it is necessarily to the benefit of the party. I think, I mean, some people, I read J.D. Vance's op-ed about why uh, why Trump shouldn't be blamed. I found it deeply unpersuasive. Mm-hmm. J.D. Vance is the one, can, is certainly the most MAGA Trump candidate who did have a successful night. I mean, I would argue, you you know, other now other people running and other Republicans in Ohio did better than he did. Also, and the amount of money state, that was so, spent on his campaign. And tons of money was spent. So fine, a win's a win. That's what I was saying earlier. A win is a win. So yes, good for him. But he is actually the exception on that night. Uh, Blake Masters didn't win. Adam Laxalt didn't win. Herschel Walker didn't win. Dr. Oz didn't win. Herschel Walker might Carrie win the Lake. runoff. We'll see. Carrie Lake didn't win. Um, so uh, so you, I guess you don't have to, but you, you have to blame Trump, at least in terms of the, his fundraising. They're all complaining about McConnell, what money he spent, uh, and I, I talked about that in my radar yesterday, where he spent money. McConnell spent over $200 million to help get Republicans elected. He didn't put enough, I guess, in the Blake Masters race, but uh, he was trying to win Pennsylvania. <laughs> and um, Trump spent $15 million. Yeah. 15. So yeah. if you're going to complain that somebody's not opening up you know, the, the, the pocketbook, writing you a check... Trump was the guy who didn't do it. Yeah. Also, what is the real likelihood of Republicans crossing the aisle and joining with Democrats to get a moderate elected? Because what was so funny is when, when the counterexample was raised, you know, the, the, the force of the conversation was all about the risk of Kevin McCarthy being speaker of the House. And what people misunderstood at that time was that you need a um, you need an app, you know, more than 50% of the house to elect a speaker, not just a bare majority. Mm-hmm. So if people were to abstain, let's say, um, it, you know, in the, in the wrangling over Nancy Pelosi, Republicans couldn't just vote in, uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy at that point because they didn't have a majority unless right. Democrats across the aisle to join them. You need a clean majority. Right. And at the time people were, you know, that was right. obviously not a, like that was never going to be an eventuality. What incentive would any Democrat have in doing that? And so I, now that the situation is in reverse, I understand that there is some bizarro resistance lib appetite for someone like Liz Cheney. But do you think that that's a real possibility that Democrats no. would participate um, in voting for someone like her? And, and would she be the one or would it be somebody who is not quite as lib as Liz Cheney? Liz Cheney is way not too, Kevin there's McCarthy. no chance for Liz Cheney. I mean, if all Democrats agreed to vote for, I don't know, some other, um, uh, well, she's out of it now, Jamie Herrera Butler or something. Um, 
although she lost, she was primaried and she's done. Although you, although I guess it has you can vote for anyone, right? It doesn't have to be a member of the house. If all Democrats decided to vote for some, I guess, Lisa Murkowski type mm-hmm. Republican somewhere and you got that and also eight Republican votes for, is it possible? Yes. Doesn't seem like something that could realistically happen, but that's how it would have to be. You'd have to get all Democrats to agree yeah. to vote for some like or you, Susan you, Collins. You know, there's a world where there's an actual Republican split on this issue where you get a significant number of Republicans also willing to not vote for Kevin McCarthy for the reasons that you've explained the, yeah. the, the Trumpism of it all. Yeah. Which is just so self-defeating, but they're going to continue, you know, hashing this out. Um, uh, for the time being, I, we're definitely going to have a lot of, it's, it's coming out into the open, yeah. the anti-Trump people and Republicans or, you know, people who just want they weren't against Trump's policies. They weren't against him as president. They're just ready for him to exit because they view him as a liability. They are emboldened by these results, and they can. They have a lot of data they can point to that supports that. I think that data is very compelling. The people who still love Trump, whatever, they still love Trump. They will love him forever. That's gonna. It's coming to a head. I think it will come to a head this time more than it did um, last election. But like, we'll I can't wait to follow this one, and we'll have more rising for you right after this. The Congressional Progressive Caucus welcomed nearly a dozen new members this week after a majority of candidates they endorsed for this year's midterm elections were victorious. Representative Pramila Jayapal, chair of the CPC, said that this will be, quote, the most progressive Democratic caucus in decades, with over 100 members helping the group gain more power to deliver actual change on key issues such as student debt, child tax credit, spending Medicaid, antitrust reform, and more. Joining us now to discuss is Congressman from California and member of the Progressive Caucus. Is Rokana. Welcome. Thanks for having me back on. So, Representative, uh, Robbie just ran through a couple of uh, issue areas that progressives might be excited about, but having you know lost the House, people are, I think, rightly focused on some of the things that Joe Biden promised to do via executive order, like student debt cancellation, which has recently uh, hit a hangup in the courts. Student debt advocates at uh, Strike Debt, like Asher Taylor, have pointed out that if Biden had not means-tested the program and had used the Compromise and Settlement Authority that exists under the Higher Education Act, instead of the HEROES Act, which relies on a, uh, an emergency COVID uh, status for the um, the debt to be canceled, then he would not have encountered the legal obstacles that he's encountered now. What do you say to people who say, what difference does it make to have more progressives in office if we can't get Biden to follow through on these basic promises that he uh, could enact via executive order? Well, the progressives in Congress in the last one uh, helped with the largest climate investment uh, in the history of the country, make sure that we had an expansion of the child tax credit. Now it, it, we're pushing for it to be permanent, but that cut dramatically uh, child poverty, massive investment in our schools. So we got a, a considerable amount done. And of course, it was our activism that got the president to uh, forgive some of the student loans. Some of us are pushing for even more. Now, if there is another way to do it that would meet the criteria of this court, Uh, then we'll advocate that. And the president can, uh, I'm sure, use that authority uh, if he needs to. But I think what he has done is legal and we should be fighting uh, for the legality of what he has done. 
But Representative Khan, of course, no debt has been canceled thus far because of the means-tested nature of it. Republic, conservatives were able to mount these challenges. And even um, progressive commentators like Jed Sugarman at Fordham Law School have pointed out that under the legal authority that Joe Biden has chosen, it is likely that it's not just that conservative judges will rule against this if it gets to the Supreme Court, but that all judges, this could be a 9-0 decision because the hook using a the HEROES Act, a post-9-11 authority, is a relatively weak one. Do you have any insight into why Joe Biden chose to use the HEROES Act as opposed to using the Higher Education Act, uh, which is the uh, authority under which student loan debt is currently being postponed? You know, I don't know the details of uh, the legal uh, decisions. I mean, I, my understanding is he asked his lawyers, his legal team, what was the best way to do this? And this was the recommendation. Uh, but this is easily fixed. I mean, if there is a better way to do it, uh, I'm sure uh, the administration will. Uh, the important thing, though, is to, to note that uh, many people in the administration still believe that this is a winnable case. And it was a uh, a Republican appointed judge who struck it down. So we need to fight to uh, ensure that the Republican Party and their judges aren't taking away student debt relief. And again, if we need something to fix it in Congress and the lame duck, or if the president has other means to, to do it, then uh, we should be open to that if this fails for some reason. Mm. Representative, I want to ask you about funding for Ukraine. Obviously, there was this kind of brouhaha over this, what I thought was a perfectly sensible or mild letter uh, from some Democratic House progressives, you know, asking that as we continue to fund uh, Ukraine's defense, that the Biden administration would push for renewed diplomacy, that, you know, it, it shouldn't be this um, no strings attached kind of endless support. This is obviously something that some Republicans actually in the House have become very vocal about. Um, it's been interesting to see a kind of, uh, I think, ascendant anti-interventionist faction within the GOP. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on on these dynamics? And, and I, you know, I know you're, you're someone, a, a progressive who, you know, probably feels and, and has voiced uh, opinions kind of in line with uh, Brianna's and, and mine on, on this issue. You know, what is the, I guess, likelihood of progressives and maybe even some Republicans uh, who would not agree on anything else, you know, working together to to, um, to to press for uh, an end to this war via diplomacy. As you know, I stood by the CPC letter. To me, it seemed uh, pretty vanilla. All it was saying is Putin's war is unjustified. It's unprovoked. It's illegal. We stand with Ukraine, uh, but we want to make sure that we have diplomacy to minimize the risk of the war escalating, to minimize the risk of nuclear confrontation, to minimize civilian casualties. And look, Putin has put 300,000 troops uh, on uh, on the border and in Ukraine, but he can mobilize up to 3 million. And he's systematically striking uh, electricity supplies and utilities in Ukraine. So he is a brutal person, and we should not uh, underestimate how uh, brutal he will be and continue to be. So I have continued to say that I support standing with Ukraine, but I support uh, diplomacy and uh, communication with the Russian counterparts. Lo and behold, it turns out all the generals agree with me. And the New York Times has been filled this last week of general after general saying that that's a prudent approach. So then to what do you attribute all of the brouhaha about the letter? I don't know. I think it was much ado about nothing, uh, to, to borrow the famous uh, Shakespeare quote. I mean, I, 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 I don't uh, think that the letter was controversial when written. I don't understand why 
we retracted it. That's why, if if you notice, uh-huh. I went on television actually and and supported it uh-huh. uh, because the letter was not saying anything about funding actually. And you know, my position has been uh, voting for every funding package. I've been criticized from people uh, to my left for that. All the letter was saying is that we need diplomacy. We had diplomacy at the height of the Cold War. Uh, we would never have convinced Russia, in my view, to leave Afghanistan if we weren't at the same time talking to them while we were uh, arming the Mujahideen. Uh, President Reagan engaged in diplomacy. Most of the uh, our leaders, Republican and Democrat, have engaged in diplomacy. So I, I was a bit surprised why that has suddenly become a controversial position. Well, Representative, I want to switch gears and ask you a little bit about uh, the speakership race. When asked if she would support House Speaker Nancy Pelosi for another term as Democratic leader or if she herself planned to fight for the seat, Representative Jayapal skirted the question, instead explaining the CPC considers all people who are running and how they match up to the set of things the CPC asks for. Mm. On Monday, you answered that same question by saying that Pelosi deserves the chance to lead after her courage in certifying the 2020 election following a January 6. Can you elaborate on your thoughts here? Well, I think the speaker has shown uh, remarkable courage after the uh, horrific incident on Paul Pelosi. A lot of people would just say, I'm done with politics. She yeah. has stayed out there on the battlefield. Uh, she also showed courage in certifying the January 6 results. And we've massively overperformed uh, in uh, the election in terms of what people were expecting. So she deserves the chance to say what she is doing. And I have no insight into what she wants to do, whether she wants to uh, contest for leadership, whether she wants to stay in the Congress, uh, not in leadership, whether she wants to do something else. But from my vantage point, she's earned the right to make that decision. What do you say to people who might argue that who should be uh, a leader, uh, whether minority leader or majority leader, should be less about their kind of personal deservedness, whether or not they showed courage in the face of one six or have suffered personal tragedy uh, with respect to her husband being you know, brutally attacked, but instead should be more calculated to the interests of the people, especially if you're t- speaking from the perspective of a CPC member, what is in the best interest of progressives. Some progressives like AOC, when she was running for office, made a point of saying that Nancy Pelosi doesn't represent her interests and would not uh, get her vote, vote as a default uh, for Speaker of the House, that seemed to have changed in the context of the force of vote discussion uh, during the last speakership vote. You know, what criteria is the exclusive criteria here, whether or not Nancy Pelosi is powerful and deserved on an individual level, or should there be some more consideration for whether or not she is effectively advancing the interests of the left? Well, there should be a consideration of whether she's effectively uh, advancing progressive ideals and setting up for democracy. I don't think her courage is just about her personal virtues. I think it is about someone tough who's going to take on election deniers, who's going to stand up for democracy, uh, take up and stand up to to Kevin McCarthy and some of the extreme elements of that caucus. And I have seen uh, that she is a fighter on those issues. And obviously, democracy was on the ballot this time. Uh, I've also seen that uh, she has been able to stand up for a lot of progressive priorities in the negotiation. Some of the other folks in uh, leadership uh, aren't as sympathetic often to to progressives. But I guess the question is always the uh, alternative. And uh, I I don't, if someone were to emerge who I thought would do a a better job, I'd obviously consider it. But right now, I think that she'd be good. 
Is there no one being considered? Because this was a part of the conversation in the, in the last cycle. The pushback against folks who wanted there to be a more competitive race for the speaker said that there was no one in the wings. And that seems to be a problem with the Democratic leadership, which is much older, especially when you look across the aisle at what's going on with Republicans. There are people openly mounting challenges to Kevin McCarthy right now. And Republican leadership generally seems to be more energetic and younger. Is a failure to um, cultivate or even to kind of ask questions about who could replace Nancy Pelosi uh, causing there to be such a shallow bench on the left? I don't think so. First of all, I don't think age is a, a consideration. I mean, I was proud to support Senator Sanders twice, and uh, he's generated record enthusiasm among young people. So I think it's more about a person's convictions and what they want to do than I would agree. Uh, whether it's someone who's young or old. Uh, but I but I think there are a, a whole number of people who are going to be part of the next generation of leadership conversations. I mean, I'm not saying anything new. Hakeem Jeffries, Pramila Jayapal, Catherine Clark, uh, uh, Adam Schiff, uh, and, and Jonah Goose. And and that uh, hmm. transition is, gone, is, is happening, is going to happen, whether it's for all the positions this time or some of the positions over the next term or two, you're going to see a whole new generation of people in many of these positions. Is there any chance, given the very narrow majority Republicans will have in the House of like all Democrats uniting and peeling off, uh, you know, a couple more moderate or maybe anti-Trump, whoever's left uh, on the Republican side and, you know, unanimously voting for some speaker who's, you know, not as far, uh, is not as kind of entrenched in conservatism or Trumpism as Kevin McCarthy? Well, you're talking about the Willie Brown maneuver. Willie Brown in my state of California managed to get elected speaker from the minority. I don't know if we have someone of that political skill in, uh, mm. in our caucus, but it's an intriguing possibility. Look, I'm talking to some of the Republicans uh, with a small group. I don't want to get into the names about how we democratize the House and how we can have rules, at least, that allow members to introduce amendments, members to introduce bills to take to the floor without leadership blocking them. So you could, at the very least, get certain reforms through that members of the Republican caucus want, and maybe we have less centralized power. I think that's a more likely scenario than uh, a consensus speaker emerging. Mm, that would be fantastic. I know that's something uh, Justin Amash, uh, libertarian representative, a former libertarian rep uh, representative, also wanted to see happen. So good luck with that. And please come and report back to us if you're successful in that regard. <laughs> Thank you so much, Congressman, for joining us. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Although the predicted red wave didn't end up happening this election cycle, Republicans were successful in regaining control of the House, flipping four seats in New York State alone. New York Democrats took little time to start the blame game. Representative Mondaire Jones, who opted not to run for re-election in his uh, newly paved district, blames disgraced Governor Andrew Cuomo for his poor handling of redistricting and his lack of funding for the 2020 census. Joining us now to discuss is New York State Senator Jabari Brisport. Welcome, Jabari. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So what do you attribute this, uh, these Republican successes in New York to? What, what's going on there? Uh, I would say uh, two things. One, Democrats failing to spend enough time focusing on the courts and also Democrats failing to distinguish themselves enough from Republicans. One, on the courts, you have a conservative majority 
on New York's highest court uh, because Democrats have not focused on it enough. And the conservative majority court overturned the lines and to pass it on to a Republican judge who then redrew the lines for New York. And also in many of these races, you know, a lot of Democrats were not pushing a clear progressive alternative to Republican talking points. And I think a lot of people are tired of looking at their ballot and seeing a Democrat and Republican and not seeing much daylight in between them. Yeah, I did hear AOC in an interview recently making the case that because people like uh, Kathy Hochul were leaning into the kind of uh, messaging around crime that Republicans said, they came off as, if anything, kind of a light version of the Republican on crime and ended up reinforcing some of the messaging that's coming not just from the right, but from people like uh, Eric Adams. Uh, What do you see as an, an alternative approach? There's a lot of discussion about whether or not there is a compelling left take on how to talk about crime, which is a legitimate concern for people in New York? Well, we know that the safest communities are the ones with the most resources. And what Democrats need to lean into is rather than saying we need to put more money into cops and jails, which are things that happen after a crime, we should put more house, uh, put more resources into things like housing, mental health care and um, jobs, which will help deter crime before it happens. Mm. Another target of blame for the Democrats' failure in New York is Mayor Eric Adams, whose approach to crime and violence was less progressive than his Democratic counterparts, with his refusal to challenge Republicans' dismissal of Black Lives Matter protests and instead portrayed himself as a moderate focused on law and order. One of the biggest losers in the midterms was Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee Chair Sean Patrick Maloney, an incumbent who lost his congressional race in a district Biden carried in 2020 by more than 10 points. Maloney is being slammed for alienating Democratic grassroots groups in his district, instead fundraising throughout Europe with Congressman Adam Schiff. This was a huge story, uh, Jabari, among progressives, because as we recall, he, the redistricting happened. He ended up claiming what was largely Mondaire Jones's old district. Mondaire Jones, considered to be on the more progressive end of things, ended up having to go and compete in a district that he was not from in Manhattan, the 10th district, which was a crowded district with a lot of good progressive talent and ended up cannibalizing the progressive efforts there. And then Sean Patrick Maloney, after doing all of that, lost his seat. What what are the consequences of that kind of mismanagement? I think the consequences are clear with us seeing that Democrats may lose the House. So Sean Patrick Maloney has his share of the blame for causing Democrats to not have control of um, government, the federal government, in the upcoming two years. But within the party, do you think there is a robust conversation? Because, again, going back to that AOC interview, she pointed out that in New York State and you know, the party as a whole, there seems to be much more appetite for punching down at progressives than there is at making these kind of good strategic decisions. And that Democrats who do that, who prove their, their merit by progressive punching, tend to rise up in the ranks. And people who have these other kinds of failures, in fact, don't succeed. Do you think that within the party there's any recognition on how rewarding moderates is not actually inuring to the benefit of the Democratic Party as a whole? I mean, what we have seen, I mean, this is indicative of New York, um, the Democratic Party, and also nationwide is the punching left instead of going after Republicans. And it's not just Sean Patrick Maloney punching left. It's also the state party chair of New York, Jay Jacobs, who punches left 
who spent $7,500 trying to oust me with a more conservative Democrats, while uh, Democrats in his county, in Nassau County on Long Island, got wrecked by Republicans. Uh, we're, we're seeing that, you know, this session, we pushed policies to appease moderate Democratic politicians. We did bail rollbacks um, because they, they said they needed it for their elections. We did not raise any new taxes on the rich to fund social services because moderate Democratic politicians said they didn't want to do that. It would affect their elections. And then after all that work to appease the concerns of moderate Democrat politicians, a bunch of them still lost. So if anything, we need to move in the opposite direction. Mm. Mm. It's interesting that that would be, I, I guess, the, your conclusion or the Democratic, the progressive Democratic conclusion, looking at the, uh, so the, the Republican conclusion, I, I think, in a lot of places, given the failure to take the Senate, is the opposite. That, and maybe it's, maybe it's not ideological, because maybe it's more personality-based than policy-based on the Republican side, but I, I think the perception is that Republicans lost races that they could have won in, in the national context, the U.S. Senate, uh, by being uh, too far right or, or too pro-Trump or something, and that if you had, you know, more moderate candidates, you would probably not consider them moderate in their views, but, you know, moderate compared to people like Blake Masters and Adam Laxalt, um, you would do better that in races where they had those, those candidates with broader appeal, they did better. But it, it sounds like you're taking the opposite lesson for Democrats, that they need candidates who are further to the left to win. Well, I, I, I think no one should be pro-Trump. So everyone who's saying that anyone should be should be a not pro-Trump, I, I would I would agree with that. Um, but I actually do think that yes, when you shift over to framing that is pro-billionaire and pro-corporate, whether that's moderate Democrats or um, far-right Republican, um, people do not like that. People are tired of seeing framing that does not put their needs first. Working people want to know that people are being placed before profits. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I, I do think this is interesting that it happens. I mean, here, I take your point, Robbie, but I think the argument being made is that if you affirm the framing of your counterpoint, then ultimately, even if you are distinguishing yourself in some way, you basically are making the problem that they've identified seem significant and real and not necessarily offering your putting yourself forward as a better alternative to it. So by repeating basically the Republican talking points on crime, instead of offering its own independent critique of what's going on with crime in the state, the argument is that Democrats basically entrenched the Republican worldview and also the solutions they were offering, even though so those solutions weren't well targeted to actually meeting the needs of people in, in the state. Also, it's New York. It is a blue state. This isn't necessarily a prescription that everybody's uh, demanding across the country. We're Correct me if I'm wrong, Jabari. Does that does that sound sound right to you? It, yes, we, people want a clear alternative vision. You know, mm -hmm. I, I represent mm -hmm. a district that um, suffers from gun crimes. It's it's it you know, and the answer to it is not you know a Republican framing of saying we need to do more things, more police to come after the crime, more prison guards for after the crime. My district needs more jobs and needs more affordable housing and needs more mental health care support. And Democrats should be leaning more into that framing um, rather than a carceral one. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jabari. Thank you.
White House officials are reportedly considering extending the pause on student debt payments beyond January 1st, 2023, as courts block President Biden's plan to cancel up to $20,000 in debt per borrower. This news comes after the plan faced another loss on Monday when a federal appeals court panel agreed to a preliminary injunction halting the program. The ruling came from a three-court panel in the federal appeals court this just days after a federal judge in Texas blocked the program, saying it, quote, usurped Congress's power to make laws. The Washington Post writes that in August, Biden announced the administration would implement student debt forgiveness while ending a moratorium on student debt payments that began during the pandemic. So the argument here is that um, uh, so the people suing state of Missouri has standing because the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority is a loan servicing state mm-hmm. organization that takes in some revenue from yeah the government debt. hires it to do a job to administer the student and it debt. Is, so it is going to it, it has plausibly argued that it is harmed by this forgiveness. So it can. Because that's really the issue. It's trying. It's trying to establish, or, or that's right. what legal commentators have said is the main issue is trying to establish, actually have a court case go through because you, to prove you actually have standing. Because you have to, you know, prove you were harmed by the right. Loan so which I, I, my understanding is that actually isn't the strong standing case. That saying basically, if I if I hire you to clean my house and you, I, I therefore, and then I say, never mind, I don't need your services anymore. You can't sue me saying you absolutely have to keep hiring me to keep your house, clean your house right. because I had a vested interest in that job. No, the government has contracted people to administer loans that it has issued. If it wants to cancel those loans, forgive those loans, it has the ability to do so. But that's not quite- The problem here, the, the problem here my, my understanding is the stronger standing case is that people, someone who worked for the, one of the loan servicing industries has been put forward to argue that they are disadvantaged by the program because they were not eligible for various reasons. So either they didn't qualify because they made too much money or had already paid off their loans. And then that's, that's the standing hook that's um, allowing this to survive. I think the argument's closer to you're paying me to clean your house and then the government come like it passes or just declares. No, not the government. The government is the person whose house is getting cleaned. Those are government loans right. and that's crucial to But the this. government does that and that harms and then I, you're, my service is no longer required so I can sue. That doesn't mean the law, me being able to sue doesn't mean the, the action was improper. It just means I'm able to sue because I'm harmed because of it. Right. I mean, the, the, the implication then they would of still, what- they, they would still judge whether it is it was legal or constitutional to do what was done. The, or you could say it was perfectly legal the, to the, harm the, you. Sorry. Well, no, the implication is that the government isn't able to end its own contracts at will, which is not exactly what I would no, consider it, to be a conservative is, libertarian if it does it legally, perspective. If it is if it does it like- well, there's nothing illegal about the government deciding to end well, a contract with That's it. what we're... No, that, that's not actually in dispute and why this is part of the Whether issue. President Biden can just declare it is under dispute. Right. Well, so I want to get to that because yes. the real issue here isn't really about any of that. The real issue here is that the authority that Biden used to base this yes. on is incorrect authority that makes itself vulnerable yes. to this. So the problem is that Biden has said that he wants to use the HEROES Act, which is a post 9-11 act, to justify his executive authority. So as we've been saying this whole time, yes. Biden does have the executive authority to cancel student debt without an act of Congress. No, I don't. I don't. However, executive authority comes from congressional grants. So you have to have some legislative hook to justify your, the the width of your congressional, of your executive action. And there are multiple congressional authorities that one could conceivably have used to do this instead of using the big obvious one, um, the higher education act, which is the authority under which the student loan debt has been 
postponed. There's been a moratorium for now two years. He decided to use the HEROES Act, which is an emergency act, which requ- which um, requires there to be like an, an, an emergency footing, which he argued and the, the, his lawyers argued was justified by COVID. Now, not only has Biden said that COVID is over, the court, the Supreme Court has shot down any number of cases on the basis that COVID is over, including very famously all of the mandates. So why would the Biden administration, knowing that the Supreme Court is already hostile to that kind of an argument, base its Supreme Court, sorry, base its um, uh, uh, right. program on this kind of a faulty case law. Now, I have been blowing the whistle on this for a long time. I talked about it on this show. Mm-hmm. I talked about it with Judge Sugarman, a professor from Fordham Law, on my own show. And I've talked about it with the leaders of the, um, the advocates for debt relief over at uh, the Debt Collective, Astra Taylor and Sparky Abraham. And this was a known known. And so to the extent that, you know, we just talked to Ro Khanna and he says that I'm sure this could be fixed. I'm sure this could be changed. It could have been avoided entirely had Biden chosen to use different authority, which is why some people are asking whether or not Joe Biden actually never planned to follow through on this program and simply use it as an inducement for people to young people to come to the polls. So some people, including Jed Sugarman, is it? That's yeah. his name? Right. Believe that. And I, so I think you're right that the, um, the Higher Education Act authority for doing this is stronger than the HEROES Act. But since you've brought that out on the show, I've been doing more reading about it. And I, I have, can find, including Ilya Soman, who's a legal expert who uh, writes for us at Reason for Vola Conspiracy. He thinks ultimately the Higher Education Act author- authority would be, in the end of the day, also problematic because it's a major questions doctrine issue where it's it's beyond the scope of what... The, the, that that law is really giving the president authority to declare um, uh, for in, in individual case-by-case basis, not wholesale for lots and lots of people. Well, if that were the case, then Donald Trump would have been improper in starting the student loan moratorium in the first place. Certainly believes Trump was improper and doing that. But here we are. So this brings us to the second (laughs) prong of this, which is that regardless of the authority, if someone believes everything Trump has ever done is improper. Well, this this brings us to the second issue, which is that regardless of whatever. uh, Donald, whatever authority is used, if Joe Biden had simply canceled the debt outright, just done it without making an application process and means testing it, there would have been no recourse for anyone to try to obstruct the law. Basically, because there would have been no standing. No, well, because it, it would have been a done deal, and the consequences. Well, it would have invited the, legal challenges. Well, sure, but what are you going to do about it? The administrative. Re- reality of actually canceling that debt and then going back and trying to put pe- put money back on people's balance sheets. It just would not have occurred. And this is something, another one of the arguments that the strike debt people have been making for the whole time. If you feel like some people are going to get a windfall, if you think that mm-hmm. there are some people who are don't deserve to have their debt canceled, go ahead and raise taxes and claw back on the back end. But when you create administrative hurdles like this, you give people an opportunity to bring cases in the first instance and get injunctions like the ones that that are in place now that prevent the, the policy from going through. If they forgive all the debt right now, they won't be able to do a piecemeal forgiveness in the next election weeks before it in order to it, it, keep exact, the Democrats exactly, in power. Exactly. And that's what I think, you know, a lot of liberals push back against me very aggressively saying a lot of things that frankly violate the Twitter's previous <laughs> um, uh, laws against harassment. But they seem, <laughs> they seem very, you know, I can take it. It's not a big deal, but I think uh, hit dogs will holler, right? Uh-huh. And I tweeted out that it is very suspicious that like a day, was it a day or two days after midterms, suddenly we get this decision the same way that we got the decision um, right after Cori Bush's 
protest on the house, on the steps of Congress to uphold the eviction moratorium. The the the, the co Democratic con Congress allowed it. They basically gave them permission to do that protest. Said, okay, we're going to extend the moratorium. And the next day, the Supreme Court struck it down. So there's a pattern emerging. Right. And of course, I can't prove anything here. But it is very suspicious that Biden, knowing that he could have avoided these well, challenges, the Supreme Court was waiting to strike that down. I mean, they were. Well, that the that the Congress had knowledge that the Supreme Court decision was going to come out that way, so it was okay for them to allow it. Yeah. Um, but it's increasingly suspicious for voters who feel increasingly ho hoodwinked that youth, young voters came out to the polls in record numbers, matching almost the 2018 record numbers, and but for them, Fetterman wouldn't have won. Democrats would not have held uh, held um, the Senate, and the red wave might have actually materialized. And for this kind of bait and switch to have happened, I think a lot of voters are sitting here thinking, well, I'm not actually going to follow through and vote for Democrats until I actually have what they've delivered in my bank account. Voters in Georgia saw this after they were told they were going to get $2,000 checks and student debt cancellation if they came to the polls and voted for Joe Biden in 2020 and won him the Senate in 2020. They also didn't get the voting rights reforms they were promised or the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. So at a certain point, have to look up and say, are Democrats just lying to us to get us to the polls, bribing us to get us to the polls, um, inducing us with promises to codify abortion when they turn around as Barack Obama did and say, well, never mind, it's not my priority. It was wildly effective. And are, are they going to keep doing it as long as it keeps working? Hmm. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. Because here's the truth. As long as the Democratic Party and the permanent Washington elite are working hand in hand with Google and Facebook, and as long as Google is allowed to continue to use its monopoly power to skew public opinion in a certain direction, literally manipulating the information that we as voters are allowed to see, then there is no democracy. A recent study by researchers at North Carolina State University found that Google's email service, Gmail, quote, retained the majority of left wing candidate emails while sending, quote, the majority of right wing candidate emails to the spam folder. Now, additionally, Google has greatly reduced the visibility of various conservative websites in its search results. Breitbart, for example, found that Google has changed its algorithm so that search traffic to Breitbart declined by more than 60%. As you can see, these kinds of changes can have a major impact on voting. A peer-reviewed 2015 study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found that big search engines like Google can influence the voting preferences of undecided voters by 20% or more. We've been hearing a lot of politicians scream and shout about how committed they are to defending our democracy. Stop posturing. Stop fear mongering. Do something about it. That's what we need right now. That was former representative and newly minted paid Fox News contributor Tulsi Gabbard on Fox News last night. Robbie, what's your take? Mm. I wish Google would get better at filtering all candidates' emails. So let's <laughs> let's get those left wing ones in the spam folder as well. I no, honestly, I'm, I'm not even kidding. And probably, and here's the issue with some of these tech complaints. Probably the, one of the reasons that more um, Republican emails of that nature go to spam is because they are spammier. Is because they get flagged as spam. What's, what's they, an example of that? 
um, I don't have an example available off the top of my head, but I see the kinds of well, I see their fundraising emails, and they're and and they it's it's not clear what the money is be it would be going to. It'll be it'll have some right wing figure, and it'll say you know donate now to you know stop the left wing agenda, and maybe it's it's not even going to a campaign; it's just going to this figure. I talked about in my on my uh, radar earlier this week about this joint fundraising website that Donald Trump had for to raise money for Blake Masters, but if you read the fine print, ninety nine percent of the funds. We're going to Donald Trump, mm-hmm. not to Blake Masters. That's the kind of thing Google's trying to protect you from. Mm. Um, now, that does not mean that tech decisions are always on the up and up. We've talked exhaustively about how bad moderation decisions like the Hunter Biden decision might have affected things. And, and I agree with her and absolutely take her point that uh, it, I, I would say it's not so much the Democratic Party as it is the federal government, which is currently controlled by the Democratic Party. Joe Biden's own White House uh, messaging very aggressively to social media companies like Facebook about what kind of content decisions they should make vis-a-vis COVID mm-hmm. and um, some other things. The Intercept has done good reporting on, uh, on on Homeland Security kind of stepping into this role mm-hmm. as well. But the COVID stuff was pretty eye-opening because mm-hmm. it was very direct, saying we don't like this kind of content. And a lot of those turned out to be bad calls, like the Hunter Biden call. So, so yes, tech companies. But again, that's not really... That's not really the tech companies so much as the priorities of our own federal government, our own federal government thinking it, it should have the right to dictate these choices to tech companies. Yeah, look, this is something that has been happening for a long time. And I got to say, the left has been talking about for a while as well. Uh, Bernie's uh, deputy campaign manager, Ari Robin Hoft, wrote in his book about, at a certain point, the senator, this is a Senate camp, his Senate campaign, not his um, presidential presence, being basically told by a Facebook employee that if he didn't want to be hurt by the algorithm after they saw it, an enormous drop um, yeah. in the the traffic to the the Senate website, the Facebook website, that they basically needed to let Facebook set its legislative priorities and determine what got posted to the site. There was an article in 2020 about how algorithmic changes were hurting left-wing sites and an article from the New York Times back in 2017 about how YouTube's uh, shifting algorithms hurt independent media. And as someone in the independent media space, folks talk about this all the time, how much easier it was to break through and compete with mainstream media before 2017-ish, and how many shows saw an enormous growth during that period of time before algorithmic changes, not to not to privilege left versus right, but to privilege the center, to privilege that like cozy, warm, mm-hmm. safe space that the advertisers love so much. And I think this is what Elon yes. Musk is now reali- realizing yeah. that what's really driving a lot of these decisions but, is ad dollars, not politics. But the, the, they also got really heckled into doing some of that by by the legacy media, by mm. the mainstream media. Yes. I mean, all of those, the, the New York Times tech coverage, which actually got called out recently. I'm very glad he did this by Matt Iglesias, who's a, who's a Democratic progressive. I mean, you might, I don't know. Not if, a progressive. Well, you take issue with that. <laughs> Liberal commentator, long running, formerly of Vox, now runs this, uh, has a sub stack. Uh, and, and he said, apparently with some insider knowledge confirming what I've always presumed, is that the New York Times had like an editorial manifesto mm. on tech. Tech coverage should be apocalyptic. Mm. If you're writing about social media, if you're writing about tech, you should. it should sound like this is tobacco. This is tobacco and mm. we're finding out that everyone's going to get cancer mm. from it. That should be the, the tone of your coverage of this. Mm. Um, and 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 that that's what it seemed like. I believe that because I, when I, you read it, it seems like it was about, remember, reports on uh, what was it? Clubhouse. Oh no, Clubhouse. The misinformation possibilities are endless because you don't even have a transcript. How could we fact check it? Yeah. People are speaking without our control. Oh no. That <laughs> was the tenor of the conversation. Um, 
And so my, my point being, when they're sounding all these alarm bells about how much information and that that's a threat to democracy is that these these social media platforms allow too much of you and I to talk um, eventually. And then there was pressure from mainstream lawmakers to echoing those concerns. And the social media companies have have caved, have bowed and have and have uh, crushed some independent content creators very, very wrongly. But but because but it's not in a vacuum is what I'm saying. It's not there's it's not just of their own free volition. They're saying, wow, it would, we're, you know, we're just going to take this Hunter Biden story off. They got told by law enforcement sure. over and over again that if you don't do this, the democ- the election will be illegitimate because of you unless you do this. Yeah. There's a lot going on here. Abby Martin, uh, who is a journalist who had, had a show with RT, had her show just wiped from the internet. Obviously RT was banned in Europe. Um, you saw any number of left-wing, um, shows uh, deplatformed and demonetized as a consequence about of talking about things like the Russia-Ukraine war using a historical perspective that is very different from the ahistorical perspective that you largely get on mainstream media. And this is a real problem. But I, I do think a lot of it is this YouTube wants to push cat videos uh-huh. Interior design content, things that no one is going to have an issue with their uh, with their ads rolling on, right? That that is what's driving this, and that's why the push to have people like Elon Musk, these kind of rogue figureheads who people think are going to, you know, wrest control and right the ship. That's just not how it works. There's a much bigger systemic failure that's going on here, as, as opposed to it just being like the the ideological peccadilloes of the person in charge. I think the best solution is to support or contribute to or et cetera. Um, uh, independent uh, pl- platforms that have have clearly stated, like we're not going to bow to this kind of pressure. We we believe in fostering a true range of voices, like Substack for written content and like Rumble for video content, etc. I'm 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 glad to see those uh, those companies succeeding or doing well uh, because some of the problems with you know with a type, with a parlor type or a, you know, some some sites that set themselves up as like oh, yeah we're the free speech people you don't have to worry about us censoring you but they're not competently run. And then they, yeah, they look what's going on with Mastodon. A lot of people would like. I don't even know what's going I don't on even with know, Mastodon. Like, what is it? <laughs> apparently, it's very difficult to even just register an account on Mastodon. Cool. And the user experience is just not what Twitter is. So, like, I appreciate people trying to find alternatives. I think that. Do you know what Be Real is, is? I don't. What's Be Real? I have just learned about this. Oh, you don't know what it is. I don't at all. know what it is this at is all. This is a new social media thing, which um, I guess it's like TikTok, but it's just once a day. It takes a photo of you nope. from both sides. I'm already out. And that's out. its thing. I don't like it. I'm it already out. Could look, be the new place that hosts Rising. We're, we're all- <laughs> Rising is just a photo once a day now. <laughs> Look, we're, we're all going to, it makes prep a little bit easier. So we're all going to end up on TikTok and that's just what it is. Everybody steal yourself. When Twitter goes, if Twitter goes down, mm-hmm. that I think is the natural inheritor of the kind of discourse that happens on Twitter because Instagram is not set up for discourse in the same way. So yeah. uh, everybody put your concealer on and get ready to be a visual medium. All of the journalists and blue checks are going to have to figure out how to be charming on camera. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> well, we're setting a, we're setting a model because we're so, so charming on camera. <laughs> sure. Sure. Robbie. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Pfizer and Moderna have announced clinical trials to determine whether or not there are long-term myocarditis risks linked to the COVID vaccine. According to NBC News, the FDA has required studies assessing the impacts as part of the approval process for mRNA COVID vaccines. Moderna has already launched two trials. Pfizer is slated to begin in the next couple of months. 
According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, hundreds of millions of COVID vaccines have been administered. There have been 1,000 reports of myocarditis or pericarditis in children under 18, mostly in young males. Now, most of the patients who developed these conditions have fully recovered. So far, research has only looked at how they're doing after several months, however. So, obviously, this should be investigated. Um, probably should have been investigated before these things were mandated all over the place, including in many cases for younger people in school. They tried to mandate them, at least in you know some school municipalities, et cetera. And I think that's largely been walked back. You know, Famously, um, Joe Biden declared a mandate for all sorts of, for thousands and thousands of workers that got um, struck down. Um, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm very for vaccination. I, I don't think we should have waited to approve them until all this testing is done. Um, you, you know, people should be able to make choices about their right medical decisions based on the available evidence and what their doctors recommend for them. And it can be different for different groups of people, people in an older or more at risk category. The risk of not getting the vaccine, it might just so obviously so substantially outweigh anything else. But, uh, the COVID being such a such a threat, um, but but you know for younger and healthier people they absolutely deserve that choice and they're certainly entitled to more information about how this affects people. Well, I think that some of the controversy around this is less about whether or not it was right to instruct people to get vaccinated uh, earlier on. I think that sometimes I, I understand. I think there's rightly some frustration about mandates, et cetera, that persisted after we had knowledge about the limited effects of the COVID vaccine against transmissibility and the continued, I think, shaming and blaming that goes on about around vaccination and um, ivermectin and all of these kinds of things, uh, even though it's not actually calculated to doing what the people thought it was going to do. But remember, earlier on, there was an evolution in our understanding of what was going on here. And I understand in the context of a crisis, wanting people to get vaccinated, especially since hospitals were filling up, medical health mm-hmm. practitioners were really um, bogged down, et cetera. But my concern here, and I think the, the reason why so many people are paying attention to this story, is why is that these trials are not being started until two years mm-hmm. into the pandemic? I understand, again, the exigency of wanting to focus on getting the vaccines out early on, but two years into it to just now be starting uh, studying the uh, possible effects, uh, these, these negative effects on heart, on the heart, especially for young males does right. seem to be a delay that has not been sufficiently explained. Right. And given, and other countries are not following the exact same, not all of them in lockstep with, with as pro vaccination, even for younger categories as, as we have been. Some European countries have gone a different way. Eventually they've, they've said, eventually they've looked at the data and said, you know what? We're not seeing much of a benefit to this. It's not meaningfully reducing cases. We're not actually seeing better health outcomes in lower age populations any, for another for another dose and another dose. So we're going to stop saying that's really absolutely what you should do. Maybe um, maybe it's different if you have an underlying health condition or you have morbid obesity or something. But we're going to just you know ease off that a little bit. Yeah. Not saying that the risks of the vaccine are so are just so large, but just that we don't see much of a benefit. So why take any risk then if you're not getting much benefit? That's what other perfectly valid, perfectly well-informed health officials in other countries have determined. There, We obviously have some voices like that in this country saying saying things of that nature. It's not anti-vaccine. It's not about, you know, your, your grandparents, et cetera. Um, they, they might always continue, or they might decide a, a, if they talk to a doctor, they might say, no, really, this year you should probably get another booster yeah. because COVID is really devastating, can be really devastating 
for this age group, and it, it's so much more um, dangerous than the risk you might develop myocarditis. Yeah, but I, that's just not necessarily the same for like a 22-year-old. Sure, and and, and I, I think another part of the story that is potentially affecting the timing of the research that's now underway is vaccine liability, liability for pharmaceutical manufacturers and the like. I mean, I understand that on some level, we talked about the scheduling. Yeah. Yeah. On on some level, the interest in need to develop vaccines quickly and get them out to address a national emergency. I understand that these manufacturers want some protection against, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. against being sued if something goes awry when they are the ones that are being under pressure by the government to get these things out quickly. At the same time, again, Two years into it, at, at what point does your being shielded from liability disincentivize you from following up on potential downstream effects of the drug that you're producing? Even in the best situations, pharmaceutical companies are not necessarily the most hypervigilant about finding out and disclosing the harms that they know exist with their own product. So I think this is a story that is going to continue to develop on both ends, both as we learn more about the potential downstream effects of vaccines and also as we continue to learn more about the longer term effects of long COVID. Yeah. And you're right to bring up the uh, the liability, the scheduling. We, we've talked about these vaccines being added to the, to the schedule, which does not mean they will be automatically mandated. But we know many municipalities, many states have just kind of rubber stamped what the, CD, the CDC will say. Well, we're just recommending this. Do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. They say, well, whatever you recommend is what we're requiring. And I, I could very much see a world where, uh, where you know, not in Florida, not in Texas, but in some places, these become mandatory even for for fairly young children. Um, as we're still kind of you know working through these issues, seems mm. <laughs> seems like uh, we should take that a little bit more under advisement, but um, Mm. we'll find out. All right. Tomorrow on Rising, it's being reported that roughly 15,000 peaceful Iranian protesters have been sentenced to death for defying the government. We'll discuss this shocking information with an Iranian-American expert. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can catch us on Roku and other streaming apps as well. Take care. Bye-bye. (laughs) Oh, <laughs>